Hello everyone, again, this is Gilbert Jalot talking to you from CPLS headquarters. This is Tufts on Tax, where all your tax law questions are answered right here. Any trouble you are having with taxes regarding lawsuits, trouble with the employers, businesses, friends, and family, even with the IRS, your peace of mind is right here with Mr. T. Scott Tufts. Now, he is the expert and the master when it comes to taxes and tax laws. You can call us at any time here at CPLS at 877-647-7887. Again, that's 877-647-7887. Or you can go to cplspa.com or tuftslawfirm.com or simply email him at S. Tufts at cplspa.com. Now, now, Mr. Tufts it always focuses on how tax forms and other issues impact people's daily lives in ways that are often overlooked and unknown. So, hello, T. Scott. How are you? I'm doing fine, Gilbert. Good to be with you. Today, we, we're going to do something special as well. Uh, we have attorney Aubrey Ducker. He will be joining you uh, soon and talking more details about the K-1. Is that correct? Yeah. So, in this segment, we want to, and in our podcast, Gilbert, we not only want to get the word out, but we want to have the ability to talk to other experts in their own fields. Wonderful. Where they can talk about things that impact their clients. And to the extent that these K-1s and these other types of forms, they see it in their practice, it gives us a chance in real live form here to discuss them. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Yeah, yeah. We will have Mr. Uh, uh, actually, Attorney Aubrey Ducker will join us soon. Now, you can always call us at 877-647-7887. You can also visit us on the web, cplspa.com, or visit tuftslawfirm.com. You'll see all the form segments. and Or simply email him at stufts at cplspa.com, and we'll be right back. All right, it's good to be with you and back. We're on Tufts on Tax, and today we have the great fortune of having an attorney sit down with us and talk about things that go on in his practice. Mr. Aubrey Ducker is a person of great expertise in a number of areas. I think the world of this uh, fine attorney, and one of the things that we are going to do on Tufts on Tax is we are trying to see how these tax forms and ex things that we work on bring, uh, you know, come into different areas of practice. And then we're going to let those experts and people that have their clients impacted by these forms, we're going to talk a little bit about it. It will put some real time experience on it. And I think also have some give and take that will inform our listeners of how these forms are gathering data that impacts their daily life. So without much more to be said, I am, want to introduce to our listening audience, Mr. Aubrey Ducker. Aubrey, take a moment and tell us a little bit about your practice and what you've done over the years. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me today. I'm a family law, elder law, estate planning and probate attorney, um, collaboratively trained. I prefer uh, collaborative divorces. Uh, I think that provides families with the best tools to separate their lives but continue 
to be able to parent their children in the best possible way. So um, I generally introduce myself. I'm a collaborative divorce, elder law, family law, and guardianship attorney. I help families in crisis, and that's me. That's awesome. I know um, some of what you do, Aubrey, but one of the things that's uh, fascinating about the chance to dialogue and discuss these things is we have taxes, and taxes unfortunately impact those situations as well, correct? Uh, yes, every family gets to pay taxes, and every divorce gets to decide uh, how to divide up certain tax credits. And uh, years ago, it was a lot more complicated. Uh, recent tax law changes have made it uh, slightly easier because we no longer have to argue about whether alimony is taxable or not. It's uh, non-taxable now. Um, but there are certainly tax issues that come up and uh, reviewing tax documents and tax filings is routine in our practice. Yeah, so one of the things that comes up a lot, uh, as I surmise, is a business interest. Would that be true, uh, Aubrey, that uh, these couples that are uh, breaking apart and going through a horrible experience will have to deal with a business interest of some kind? Uh, generally, if there's a business interest, there are multiple business interests. It, it's... Um, probably the most complicated uh, divorce I had the pleasure of working on involved uh, four different business entities and a separate business to manage property and a separate business for uh, just an investment vehicle. So why, why don't we just split them up 50-50 and, and move on and everything's just going to go along just fine? Well, you know, that's the goal, but you'd be surprised how many people uh, have differing opinions about what 50-50 is <laughs> and what's fair, and especially where you have um, one person who has worked to build a business. Uh, sometimes they mistakenly believe that their spouse, uh, who was not involved in building the business, sometimes they mistakenly believe that they have no interest in it. And that can cause a lot of... Uh, conflict a lot of litigation uh that's why i prefer collaborative because uh, it makes it a lot easier to work through a lot of those problems and very interesting so we have been talking at our, on the tufts on tax podcast about tax forms and one of the forms that we are are kind of acutely focused on uh in this segment is the k-1 and uh, so when I say that, uh, the, the K-1, does that uh, ring a bell or anything that you've seen in your practice? Well, K-1 uh, come, K-1 forms come up uh, for me personally in my personal taxes. I occasionally uh, have investments that involve K-1s, uh, so I see them there. Uh, business entities uh, that I've worked on in dividing up in divorce or in inheritance uh, K-1s can uh, cause quite, quite a bit of uh, review. So uh, we we talk about in our society today, We you, know, you hear about big corporations, and of course they they may or may not be taxpayers, meaning that they uh, they may or may not pay taxes, but but the idea being that in the small business world, our, our, you know, the, the people that you see in your practice and the clients and the people going through these divorces and these different situations, would it be accurate to say, Aubrey, that in those settings, these K-1s uh, trying to connect the business activities to their personal return, uh, 
requires some scrutiny in these um, situations, these divorces? Well, certainly where we see K-1s most are uh, where you have sole proprietorships or small partnerships, where you have differing investments uh, by families, especially if you have a couple getting a divorce and the one spouse may have a business partner where they have differing interests in the business, uh, then we have to value their partial interest in the business. It's seldom uh, as clear as, oh, look, here's the business. Here's how much it's worth. Let's divide it in half. It's usually uh, someone has a 30% stake in a business, a 60% stake in a business, and what is that worth, and how do we divide that in half? That can be uh, really difficult. That's where, we, you know, K-1 is something that we look at. We generally have to hire uh business evaluators to review all the tax documents and make those evaluations. So one of the things that uh, when we have looked at this K-1 over the years, we've seen it change. And uh, Aubrey, one of the things that got me involved in these tax forms over a decade ago was the idea that the IRS uh, figured out a way to scan them in, code them, put codes on the, the form itself, track 20 some odd items, that break down not just business income but rental income and guaranteed payments and capital gain and capital losses and deductions and distributions and and that's just the right side of the form the left side of the form after all these years has gotten into well what type of partner are you are you a member manager are you a managing member are you a foreign partner or a domestic partner are you a disregarded entity what kind of profit loss and capital percentage do you have et cetera? So, Aubrey, some of this stuff, is it, uh, uh, you know, this is just on this K-1 form with all of this data in there. Um, what, what kinds of things come to mind when I talk like that about that kind of uh, level of detail that's in this K-1? Well, if I had been better at math, I might have become a CPA. Uh, it's where they generate a lot of business because all of those calculations, uh, all of those percentages, uh, different types of partners, different types of interest, different values of interest, all of those things have to be calculated. Uh, you know, I, I always find it funny when I get a K-1 from an investment that I've made personally and I see that I'm a point zero 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 one percent shareholder <laughs> <laughs> or partner in a business. Um, you know, those, those are fun. Yeah. Uh, but... Yeah, there are so many different numbers that go in, so many different calculations. Sure. Uh, and, they need and, to be accurate. And, and, Aubrey, if we have situations where someone um, may not uh, appreciate some of this uh, detail, but yet maybe it's as simple as they're thinking they're a partner and they're no longer a partner um, or they're, they don't get a K-1 and they should or they, uh, the percentages indicated are not accurate or the numbers are not accurate, um, have you had occasion to get into situations where the K-1 itself is wrong? It's, it's got something wrong with it. I have seen um, the ways that K-1s have been used to uh, allocate shares and allocate profits and allocate income where people have had to pay taxes on income they didn't actually receive because all the income was derived and used in the business, but they still have to pay taxes on their share of the income. I've seen those problems. 
I've seen K1s used, actually, uh, a K1 was used in a fraud um, where some investors were, thought they were investing in a um, special investment, and uh, they were issued K1s that were completely fabricated to show that, oh, look, you've invested all this money, and look how much profit we've made, uh, and it was really a fr uh, extremely complex uh, embezzlement scheme. Mm. So these situations, Aubrey, one of the things that I'm trying to get the word out, if you will, is that a corollary to a K-1 might be a, a form such as an 8082 that is essentially the stopgap, the way that you properly take issue with a K-1 and do it immediately so that you're not a stopped later from contesting something that you let pass on and go through on your return. So one of the concerns I have is that there might be, the onus might be on our clients in a situation, uh, the taxpayer, to take issue with and contest and notify the IRS upon receiving a K-1 that they must contest the four corners of that K-1. Um, does that kind of surprise you that the IRS might require a prompt reaction to a K-1 as opposed to letting it sit around and come up later in a divorce or in a, a subsequent litigation? It doesn't surprise me, although it's uh, news to me that that's how you do it. Mm -hmm. That's why we have uh, tax attorneys who've been, uh, have LLMs in tax and know all these things. I have never uh, considered that type of uh, filing or. And, and, and you know, and, and taking that next step, uh, Aubrey, as you probably have seen over the years, we might have our clients in situations where the accountant, and this is understandable, a uh, matter of efficiency or, you know, and, and cost. Uh, the accountant might do the, the business return and then also do the individual returns. Uh, and so the K-1 doesn't really get a kind of scrutiny independently that it might if, the, if those roles are, are separated. In other words, someone doing the business return and then a, a, a different accountant doing the personal return. Uh, does that bring to mind any situations, any conflicts that have occurred over the years? Oh, certainly. We, we see that routinely in uh, divorce cases where uh, family started a business. They have a CPA that does their business and does their personal taxes. And there is very little scrutiny because all they're doing is uh, saying, here, you take care of this. Uh, CPA says, here, sign, sign here, sign here, sign here, and we'll get it filed. Uh, very seldom do we see the type of um, audits that might be necessary uh, for small businesses and and you know small businesses are you know could be 50 million dollar businesses right and yeah. multi-million dollar businesses we don't you don't think of that when you think of a, a mom and pop business but small business encompasses very large organizations <laughs> So, uh, Aubrey, you know, one of the things that in estate planning that can occur is uh, you might not just set up a will and, a, uh, you know, and, and a living will and the powers of attorney, but you might look to something like a, a revocable trust to do some uh, estate planning and, and to provide continuity. Um, and it, you probably had occasion to transfer an LLC or a business interest into the trust, have you? Oh, uh, once or twice. Okay. Yeah, sure. And if... That kind of thing would happen in a very small setting, a couple partners, but that would in and of itself impact the way that that, re that return would get audited by the IRS. That would be kind of important to know, don't you think? That, w that would be important to know, yes. Yeah. And so when we get into situations where we have what appears to be 
uh, one or two or three partners, but we might put a trust interest in, into play. Um, you know, if that entity can get taxed and, and, and have to pay its own taxes, uh, as opposed to passing through the taxes and the impact, that also would be something we'd want to get word out, you think? Uh, you would think so, yeah. All right, so one of the things that we get a chance to do here is talk to uh, folks like yourself where it gives me a chance to see what's out there and, and uh, know how I can best uh, get the word out. And one of the ways that I like this avenue will, will provide us to do is, uh, Aubrey, is to put it in real time. And, uh, you know, I look at forums, and I've got a couple of them here. Um, Aubrey, you've, you know that a K-1 would, would come out of a trust, for example, and, and come to a beneficiary. Uh, that K-1 might be different than a, one that comes from a S corporation. Uh, that one might be different than one that comes from a partnership or an LLC. And then, you know, and of course there might be this 8082 we're talking about. And then there's all, there's this idea that, and this is what's fascinating. And I wonder about this, Aubrey, you know, I looked at the 2019 tax form for partnerships and it's got a lot of stuff on it, Aubrey, and I'm not boring you with any of this, but thank you. Uh, I, I found it fascinating. Um, would you look down here on line 29 of, of the tax form itself of this partnership return? This is the 1065. Uh, do you see line 29 there? The amount owed? Yeah. Does if it strike you as odd that an LLC or partnership would owe tax when it's by definition a pass-through entity? Well, I would think that uh, not all LLCs are pass-through entities, and sometimes they have to divide up taxes between various members and partners or that type of thing. So I'm not surprised. Right. Single so member LLC. I've always been a single member LLC. So that is, is passed through and I don't have to do this 1065 right. form. Right. So, thankfully. so, so this form in prior years didn't have uh, this tax due concept on it, but because of the way they changed how they're going to audit LLCs. Um, and if they have a trust partner, it will subject them to an audit process that will make the entity become the tax collector of the taxes instead of chasing down all the partners and separately auditing them. How does that sound to you in a, in a new world that yeah. we're in? Yeah, 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 now you're starting to scare me a little bit. And actually, now that you've mentioned this, uh, we had this exact issue with a trust we were uh, dealing with in probate where the uh, person who set up the trust had passed away and the three beneficiaries were um, trying to divide up their, let's say, inheritance. And unfortunately, we had to consider tax implications and having to recover taxes from them before we made distributions to them. So, so the idea that, you know, maybe to sum up, Aubrey, it, I think we're going into a world where the data is collected a lot electronically, a lot of details here. Our, our clients don't have the time or they don't make the time to look at every line item, um, but there may be secrets and issues within that. And then the surprise comes when the government becomes more efficient, let's say, arguably, or at least in <laughs> intention, to collect that money at a source that's easier rather than maybe in ways in the past that were uh, a little bit more distant from them. I, I think of employers, Aubrey, that withhold taxes. I think of, you know, the idea that we're going to make folks collect the tax 
when they can at the source. And so it just was a surprise uh, from this change in the law that they have turned the pasture entities, these LLC partnership type entities into tax collectors in certain situations. Um, but you kind of see the writing on the wall where I'm going with that. And um, I think in the example you gave with a trust, I think it just behooves us to try and get the word out, you know, get our folks aware of this on the front end before the, before the die is cast and the tax consequences are reported and not contested. You have a, any comments? It's easier to reserve, uh, reserve a set aside for taxes to be paid than it is to recover the money that you've already given to a beneficiary to say, hey, we need to pay taxes on that. I always find it amazing that uh, isn't the uh, isn't our income tax system all voluntary? <laughs> I always it doesn't like sound that. voluntary, does it? Well, you know, it's it's voluntary. You volunteer to give taxes. You volunteer to withhold them from your employees. You volunteer to pay them. And when you fail to volunteer, that's when it gets troublesome. Yeah. Well, and it's also um, so. Here's the thing: um, the unknowns that we're trying to address, um, uh, Tufts on tax is uh, kind of meant not to um, worry folks so much, but to give them the idea that if they get to folks like us quickly, uh, maybe we can step up and inform them in a way that helps them make better decisions. Right, Aubrey? Oh, absolutely. It's always better to uh, plan ahead and work ahead and solve a problem before it comes up than it is to correct. After the problem has been noticed by the IRS, certainly that's the worst time to have to correct it. And, you know, maybe the last point on this, too, is, Aubrey, in these collaborative divorces or in the litigation that you've seen, these issues can come up there, too, right? In other words, the, uh, the, the K-1 can be a litigated issue, correct? Well, that's why we like collaborative divorce, because uh, we don't want to have to litigate. We don't want to have to go, to go into court and argue in front of a judge and have expert witnesses on both sides say why this K-1 is wrong, why it should be different how it indicates income in a collaborative divorce. And this is my turn to talk a little bit. No, I like it. In a collaborative divorce, we have a financial professional who works for the family to maximize their income, minimize their taxes and works together to make sure that these issues are not litigated, not litigated so that the parties can agree how they're going to treat their taxes, how they're going to divide their assets and those things you know if you consider going to court and asking a judge to decide on uh, this particular k1 or this particular 1065 income tax form what it shows for income that's a difficult concept because you have to introduce it into evidence you have to have an expert witness explain it to the judge and if one side's going to have an expert witness, the other side has to have an expert witness to refute that expert witness. So you get what's called a battle of experts. And experts are not cheap. You, you might be surprised to hear. People don't volunteer to come into court and testify for free. They have to be paid hourly. In a collaborative case, we have one expert. It's a financial neutral who works for the couple to help them make these decisions in the best way possible for their family. They make the decision. There's no explaining it to a judge. There's no teaching that's involved. An, that's an awesome concept. And so you're, so that expert gets to advise both parties, and they look to maximize the tax 
savings. savings yes and yet not add up the cost and and do that over years of litigation correct well yes. what a fascinating concept and and aubrey you know uh, i think of in <laughs> divorces you know the the unknown bank account and these awful situations that then create a a consequential tax disaster or difficulty because let's say one party didn't know about an asset they've got joint returns they've got all of these problems now how do they work their way through it you're telling me this collaborative divorce process allows a way to handle a very difficult issue in a smart way collaborative cases are built on trust and you might wonder how a divorcing couple can have trust but when you have the financial neutrals and the professional attorneys as coaches in the case there there are seldom uh, secret assets and in a collaborative case they're exposed they come out and we talk about them and it is it is much easier to solve like I said it's much easier to solve the problem before it becomes an IRS investigation mm -hmm. you can solve it now and address any tax consequences by agreement that if you don't address it ahead of time, you end up with someone being audited and suddenly having to apply for uh, innocent spouse relief and having to go back and prove they were lied to and prove that, well, they didn't sign that tax return, their spouse signed the tax return for them. We try to solve those problems in a meeting room with confidentiality between professionals with full disclosure and full advice and in that way, collaborative divorces, they just set a family up to move on and get past all of the conflict. They take the conflict out and make it an agreement, how you're going to live, how you're going to move on with your life. So oftentimes uh, I've seen over the years that folks aren't willing to put a, uh, a price tag on, on controversy, and yet it ends up being something that comes back later and is something that folks will say gosh I, I could have spent that money in a better way in collaborative divorce I assume the parties kind of get a sense that we can come to grips with that as well the the cost of this oh, and, and and so you're able to show the time value of that money right that they can move on and 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 spend dollars on what's important as opposed to on lawyers and whatnot down the road yeah people think of a collaborative divorce as being more expensive because you have four professionals at the table that are all being paid on their professional hourly rate. There's a uh, attorney coach on one side and attorney coach on the other side. And we're not really on sides. We're professionals working in a collaborative group. Then you have a financial neutral and a mental health neutral, or I, we like to say the collaborative specialist who helps us to communicate fully and completely in that process. And you might say that having four professionals instead of, normally people think of a divorce and they think of hiring one attorney and they say, well, why should I have to hire four professionals when I can only hire one professional? The four professionals can help work it out in such a more efficient manner than each person hiring their own attorney, each person arguing over whether or not they're going to get to look at the 1065 <laughs> or the 8082 or the K1. Uh, you know, that can take weeks and weeks and weeks or the Roy Rogers wagon wheel coffee table from Harry met Sally yeah okay all right I got and, it and it's so much easier when you can sit around the table and talk about it and be open and discuss 
alternatives and options that are available rather than having to go into court and say, judge, they didn't give us this form. We need this form. They, they should have to give us this other form. And then the other side says, well, no, that's my business partner's form. It has nothing to do with my marriage. Well, yes, it does, because it shows how you divide up your business and what percentage this person might have an interest in it. All of those things are so much more efficient in collaborative. Yeah, I think, I think what I've seen in the collaborative divorce process is something that's very intriguing, a chance for resolution, but being smarter than that. And Aubrey, I think from what I'm hearing from you that um, getting the word out on that as well, what those opportunities are, and uh, you see that as a rising and an improved way of handling many divorce. I realize it's not every situation, but uh, you think it's a, a way of the future? I, I think that uh, 20 years from now, there will be very few litigated cases. Um, the Florida legislature in 2017 passed the Collaborative Practices Act. Uh, we are seeing more and more collaborative work. Uh, people who are looking to most intelligently protect their family can go collaborative, be more efficient with money, and be much more um, holistic in their transactions. Interesting. Any talk about collaborative in the business uh, divorces oh, yes. that we see and, and applying that same concept to uh, the multiple partner breakup that I've heard some say are more emotional and more involved than even some divorces. I don't know if that's true, but uh, any quick thought on that? There, there's a large movement to, to spread collaborative practice into other areas because it is so much more efficient than litigation. It's so much more efficient. Um, litigation attorneys obviously don't, uh, don't necessarily like this because they would rather go in and argue and argue and argue and fight over every... Uh, every little possible fight. Uh, collaborative attorneys know that, uh, you know, business partners get together the same way marriages get together. People meet, they're working in the same industry, they see some efficiencies of scale, uh, some work together, and they collaborate to set up their business. They collaborate to improve their business. They collaborate throughout their business. And when one of them decides he wants to step away from the business, or she wants to um, go a different direction with her life, uh, why should they not collaborate on how to best do that, how to most efficiently do that? I think that's an amazing thing. I, you know, in our future podcast, uh, Aubrey, I, I really am pleased that you've educated me on, on this uh, uh, collaborative divorce and what it may be doing to our practices, because I, I definitely see that in the, in the future. And uh, so one of the things that we hope to do and, and bring you back another time and talk about other aspects of your practice, uh, one of the things that uh, we are going to do on this segment is it's not just tax, but how tax touches so many different areas. We're going to bring our other uh, professionals here that can bring other aspects to this to the table. I look forward to the chance to do that. And, uh, Aubrey, I certainly appreciate you taking some time of your busy schedule to talk about the things that are going on in your practice and hopefully a little bit of this K-1 stuff can, um, you know, if you see those issues, you can, uh, you know, let your clients know that I'm there for them if they have an issue and need it resolved. You know, you're my first, you're my first stop. Okay. All right. Thank you very much.
We want to thank uh, attorney Aubrey Ducker for joining us here today and for uh, joining us with this discussion with Mr. Tufts about the taxes and all his uh, different areas of practice. Uh, again, you can always call us at 877-647-7887 or visit us on the web, cplspa.com. Simply also email him on s tufts at cplspa.com. Thank you everyone for listening and wait for the next episode. Thanks.